This morning on my way here to church from my home, I made a quick stop at Walgreens to pick up something that my son needed. And being a Sunday morning, I found a spot right in front of the doors. No one was really there. And as we, my youngest son, who's six years old, and I were walking through the store, I heard and felt a kind of a stick, slap, stick, slap. And without looking down, I knew that I had stepped in some gum. Sure enough, these wonderful shoes that you as a church gifted me last year of Pastor's Appreciation, which I wear like once every two months, worn maybe four times now, gum and leaves stuck to the bottom. Well, we walked through, and again, it was just like five steps from my car to the front of Walgreens. When we got back in the car, my son got buckled in his car seat, and I went, I tried to scrape it off on the floor, as you do. And uh, I went in, I said, I stepped in some gum, buddy. And he said, oh, it must have been right there, right outside our car. Definitely, because it was before we walked into the store. And I said, you know, this is why we need to find a trash can or find a tissue to throw away our gum. And I said, it's convenient. It's convenient to say, I don't want this gum anymore and just spit it on the floor wherever you want. But as you can see, it's rude to other people and it affects other people. And right when I said that, my six-year-old son said, and there's a trash can right there. And sure enough, right there, right in front of our car, not 10 feet from where the gum was, was a trash can. We've been talking about temptation. Temptation is much like that in the sense that in the midst of the temptation, we may think there's nothing I can do. The solution, the resistance, the way of escape... I know exists because of the promise of Scripture, but it seems so far off when reality, it's right there. The trash can is right there to take that temptation and shove it in the trash. The problem is, is we just don't see it. We don't recognize it. And the reality, as we will see as we continue in James chapter 1, is that it, was all, it is always there. The ability to resist temptation, because ultimately the ability to resist temptation is found in God. It's found in God. Not in a relative who can't talk on the phone right now. Not in a resolution of someone who is no longer living on earth. Not next Monday when you can go back on, to work and talk to your boss. The ability to resist temptation is found in God. And he's right here all the time. Turn with me to James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. And by way of review, because it sets up the context, it sets up the context of what we're going to see this morning in verses 16 through 18. I want to review for you what we saw in verses 13 through 15 last week. We're studying verse by verse through the epistle of James. And he says in verses 13 through 15, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Stop there. We saw this as one of the fundamental responses to conquer temptation, and the first was avoid accusing the Lord. 
And although we may not verbally accuse the Lord, we saw last week how when we start blaming other people, it becomes not just that individual, but that individual's boss, and then your boss's boss, and it gets bigger and bigger, and then it's the weather, and then it's politics, and then it's the world system, and pretty soon you have nowhere else to go but to acknowledge as a believer that God is sovereign, so who else can you blame but God? But also we are reminded here that God is untouched by evil. He is untemptable. He doesn't conquer temptation. He is untemptable. He has nothing to do with evil, which is a good reminder of his power and his grace that is in our lives when we face temptation. Then in verse 14, we saw Amplify taking the responsibility or the blame. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Yes, it is true. Maybe that temptation would not exist if, if that person wasn't there, if that work situation wasn't there, if COVID didn't happen, if that person didn't cut you off, but you don't have to give in to that temptation and sin. Ultimately, the anger is yours, the impatience is yours, the judgmental attitude is yours, the pride, the lust is yours. And we saw that his own lust is any evil desire. It's not just the conventional way that we use lust in terms of sexual sin or sexual temptation, which that can be one of those. But here James talks about lust as any desire to disobey the Lord. And then thirdly, we saw appreciate escaping the consequences. Verse 15, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And when I say appreciate escaping the consequences, I mean having a high view of God. Because if you don't love God so much, if you don't worship God enough, if you don't have a high view of God, there is no point in resisting or avoiding temptation. If God is not the center of your life, if honoring Him is not crucial to you, then why would you avoid temptation? Because in essence, in this context, temptation is giving in to the disobedience of God. And if you don't care about His glory, if you don't care about living the way that He has called you to live as the redeemed, in other words, if you care more about yourself and how you feel and your own pleasures and your own desires, then you're not going to want to avoid the consequences. And when lust has conceived, he says, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Not necessarily in our lives, although we have seen that there are times where God will take the earthly life, the life, the breath of uh, a Christian to take them off of this life because of their gross sin. But it's also time out spiritual death, not for us. Praise God, but we understand that sin brought spiritual death. It brought separation from God, which if there's no repentance in that unbeliever's life, as by God's grace there has been in ours, if there's no repentance, then that leads to eternal death or eternal separation from God. But we also know that physical death appeared on earth because of the fall. And so though those those consequences may not be applicable to our lives as believers, we should understand how gross that is, how despicable sin is, that it brought physical and spiritual death into the world, into mankind, into the animal kingdom, even into the kingdom of plants that they grow and then one day wither away and die. That's all because of sin. 
And it is with this backdrop, with this foundation, understanding what temptation is, where it comes from, who is to blame, the result of sin on a broader scale historically in the history of mankind. We now come to verses 16 through 18. Follow along as I read. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. This morning I want to give you three perfections of God to remember. Three perfections of God to remember. And if we were to take these three verses out of context, that would be enough. But we need to look at the broader context. So I'm giving you three perfections of God to remember to resist temptation. These are connected to temptation. Three perfections of God to remember to resist temptation. In other words, to help us in the fight against temptation, James gives us three attributes or actions of God that are perfect because everything about God is perfect. And he introduces these attributes with verse 16, which I want to cover before we get into our outline because this is a transitional statement. He warns us as believers to not be deceived. Literally, don't be led astray from the truth. Again, this is a, a transitional statement between verses 15 and 17, such that we could say, what is he warning us to not be led astray from? It could be either verse 15 and really verses 13 through 15, or what he's about to tell us starting verse 17. So on the one hand, reaching back, James is saying, don't be deceived into thinking that anyone other than yourself is to blame for your temptation and sin. Don't blame others, don't blame circumstances, don't blame Satan, but most importantly, don't blame God. Take responsibility. Reaching forward, Believers are not to be deceived in forgetting that God is good, that God is unwavering. He is the giver of all good gifts. And as we meditate on what we saw last week and consider what we will see in today's passage, we have to understand that James is not merely warning about some sort of intellectual failure or even some sort of moral failure. He uses the word deceive, do not be deceived, do not be led astray to indicate the seriousness of this error which attacks the very core of your faith. The core of your faith is the gospel. And if you can legitimately blame other people for your temptation and sin, then you have rocked the very essence of the gospel. Because if others are to blame, Christ did not die for you because he didn't need to. He died for others. But practically speaking, you see a problem with that. Because if in every single believer's life he died for others, who did he die for? A bunch of pointing fingers. It attacks 
the core of our faith because it attacks the gospel. But also, to say that temptation comes from anywhere but ourselves also attacks the character of God. It attacks the character of God. And this is why in the midst of temptation, rather than saying, close your eyes, run away, break off that relationship, James goes into this explanation of how wonderful God is. Not how tricky or deceiving your temptation is, not how wicked the world is, but how wonderful and good God is. Because that is the key. That is the key because He is the key. If there is anyone who is great at deceiving, blinding, and leading astray from the truth, it is the devil and that which I will call his greatest disciple, the world. Society will tell you it is not your fault. Psychiatrists will tell you to blame others. The influence of the devil will tell you that God is tempting you and thus implying that God is not truly good or unstained by evil. Ultimately, when it comes to temptation, the great deception here is to convince Christians that the source of temptation and sin is anywhere but themselves. You understand that we th- there are so many Christians, uh, even entire denominations, that think it is a good thing biblically to blame Satan. It is not. That's still deflecting blame. If you deflect, blame anyone but yourself for your own sin, you are being led astray. Led astray from the character of God, what you know about the character of God. Led astray from the reality of temptation. Led astray from the very gospel that you hold. Once you can point the blame at someone else, then you halt spiritual growth. You divide the church. But worst of all, you question God. Do not be deceived. And with that warning, we come to our three perfections of God to remember to resist temptation. Remember, all of these God does perfectly. The first perfection of God to remember, God's sacrificial generosity. God's sacrificial generosity. Let me point you to the beginning of verse 17. He writes, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. James begins by telling us that all good things come from God. Now, although God is omnipresent, which is just a fancy word for saying that He is everywhere at all times, we know that He resides conventionally in heaven, which we conventionally think of as above us. So James pictures these gifts coming down from above, coming down from the throne of God. What comes down from there? First, he says, every good thing. This is a very general term, every good thing, but it has one specific, and that is the word good. 
We understand this would be good as defined by God, not by us or by the world or anyone else. Hopefully as defined by us as we align our wills and our understanding of things to God's will and the Scriptures. But this would be good as defined by God, which pairs with the other thing, perfect gift, perfect also being defined by God. Now you are probably familiar with the principle of creation demands a creator. It's something that we use a lot in evangelism to kind of try to prove the existence of God. You know, we, we point to creation and say, don't you think this was created by something, by someone? You can point at these chairs and know that it didn't, they didn't just appear out of a big bang or something. There was someone who builds furniture that made that chair. And so in evangelism or the defense of the faith, which we call apologetics, we sometimes do that with pointing at the trees or the clouds and say, well, who made those? There must be a higher power that made those things. It's essentially using the same argument as Paul does in Romans chapter 1. We point at the world around us as evidence of a creator God. And from nature around us, which God systematically in Genesis declared good, good, good to the ordering of every believer's circumstances for our good, Romans 8.28, we know with that same logic of creation demands a creator, good can only come from good. It is the other side of the argument from verse 13 in James 1 regarding God's separation from evil. Here we see that God is the source of good. And this may be hard to grasp logically sometimes because of the world around us, but I do want to clarify that God is not good in the sense of when we as believers strive to do good and we can honestly say in Christ that yes, yeah, some of the stuff we have done is good in the eyes of God. We can declare that amongst ourselves because we are doing that which aligns with what God says is good, right? Say that's good. How do you know? Because you did what the Bible says is good. And sometimes we can easily think this way about God. He is in essence good and our human logic starts going and saying because he fulfills everything that is good. That's not true. He is good. He isn't good as if he could have been bad if he didn't do all the good things. He defines what is good. Everything that is good in his word is not, are not things that he has obeyed or fulfilled. They emanate from his very being. He is the definition and the source of good. That's it. He is unstained by bad. He is unstained by evil. So even when people read the Old Testament and say, oh, what he did was bad, no, that's good. Why? Because he can't do bad. He is good. And he is more, going back to James 1, he is more than just light, a light, 
as some religions, many religions, picture their God or gods. James calls him the father of lights. And this is simply a reminder that God created physical life, light. He created the sun, the moon, the stars. He created light itself. The ancient Jews used this title to refer to God as the creator and the giver of light. And I actually would like you to see this in Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Turn with me to the very beginning of your Bibles. The first book of your Bible is Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. A narrative you may be familiar with or have at least heard of. Verses 14 through 18 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, we call that the sun, and the lesser light to govern the night, we call that the moon. He made the stars also. You, you like that? The stars. Oh, by the way, he also made the stars. As if it was, <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, by the way, he also picked up that other piece of trash. I mean, it's not some small thing that we do. And yet for God, he just did it. Verse 17 God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. Again, I, I mean, are you blown away by this stuff? It's like, a, it's, it's like a, a first grader, and they're learning about stars. And a little kid has a, has a star, a little paper star and a pen. It's like, okay, little Tommy, go pin the star up on the blackboard. Boop, there's the star. Oh, very nice. Great place for the star. God did this for real. And by the way, as some people like to argue against the, the fact that the earth is only a few thousand years old, they say, well, if he created the stars, we know how long it would have taken for that light to get to earth. And so that debunks everything because it couldn't have even existed that long, right? Because he took the light, not just the star, he took the light like a tube, like a solid tube, and also placed it in outer space. He didn't just create the sun and the stars and then, okay, go light, how many light years to get here? No, he already put the beams of light in space. He created light. Well, I digress. Look at verse 18, Genesis 1. And to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness... And God saw that it was good. Why do I have you turn to Genesis 1? Because back in James 1, I want to tell you and emphasize this. Father of lights is not just a cool title. It's a description. He created light which is a wonderful and powerful reminder not only of the God we serve and not only of the God who saved us, 
but of the God that will never tempt us and in fact does the opposite, is the provider of all good things. In other words, James's point is that if God is the creator of light, why would you question his ability to give all good things or anything that you would deem part of that all good things? He is sacrificially generous. He is the giver of all good things and every perfect gift. In other words, we know He is good. He does not just keep His goodness to Himself, but He uses that for us to bless us, to grow us, to sustain us. He is sacrificially generous. And you say, whoa, 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 whoa. You're talking about the character of God. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. It doesn't take much for Him to give these things. So I get His generosity. How is it sacrificial? Because if He is all-powerful, getting us out of a situation or providing us food or even creating the stars and placing the beams of light in outer space and into the earth's atmosphere is not sacrificial in the sense that, oh, I need to help out this family and we really need to cut back. We're not going to eat well this week so that they can eat. That's sacrificial. But if God is all-powerful, how is it sacrificial? How is He sacrificially generous? At the cross. Don't we call it the sacrifice? And nothing that we have seen, including our acceptance and belief of Genesis chapter 1, none of that would exist without the cross. Because if we were not saved, we would not have the Holy Spirit that has opened up our blind eyes to accept the truth of the Scriptures. Genesis chapter 1, where had we been exposed before we were believers, one day saw that and said, how ludicrous. And now we know it is true. And above that, essentially are constantly holding the hand of the one who created those things. It's amazing. And as the all-powerful and sovereign God, He has saved us. He has no need of anything, but He sacrificed His Son for us. That's where the level of sacrifice is reached, at the cross. So when it comes to temptation, when it comes to understanding His good and His provision, do we really need further proof of His loving generosity toward those who love Him? Can we really doubt not just His inherent goodness, but His goodness fleshed out to us? And remember, James is telling us this in order to remind us of the source and reality of sin and temptation. It is not from God. As believers, we are to respond to temptation in allegiance to God. And I get it. When it comes to temptation, it can be draining. It can be discouraging. And at times, it can be terrifying for the one who is pursuing holiness, at least. 
Sometimes we start to think, well, maybe God is mad at me. Maybe God has left me. Maybe God has forgotten me. Because we feel lonely. We feel lost. We're discouraged. I get that. We all get that. And it's the same thing with pointing the finger indirectly at God in temptation in our discouragement. In a slight twist of our good theology, we say, well, God is sovereign. God loves me, but where? I don't feel it. I don't see it. The pastor says, well, you need to go to church. And that just makes things worse. Because you see all these happy people and say, but I'm not happy. I know, I know in my theology that God is with me. I know He should be enough, but He's not, and I don't feel it. When you feel this way, when you are discouraged in any way, I want you to turn to Psalm 136. In fact, turn there with me right now. Psalm 136. In the same vein of what James is doing in a more concise manner, we are reminded of the goodness and presence of God. Psalm 136. Verses 1 through 9. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his kindness, his loving kindness, is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who alone does great wonders, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Do you see what's happening here? All the powerful uh, explanations of what God has done are connected to His loving kindness. Verse 5, To Him who made the heavens with skill, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Still talking about giving thanks. To Him who spread out the earth above the waters, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Verse 7, a la James chapter 1, to him who made the great lights for his loving kindness is everlasting. The sun to rule by day for his loving kindness is everlasting. The moon and stars to rule by night for his loving kindness is everlasting. Beloved, turn to the Lord. Your parents will fail you. I tell my kids this all the time. Turn to God, not to me and Mama. We will try our best, but we will fail. I, as your pastor, will fail you. We will fail each other. John MacArthur will fail you. R.C. Sprawl, posthumously, will fail you. God will not. Because his loving kindness is everlasting. And if in the midst of your discouragement you question that, open the blinds, take a step outside, 
and take a look at the sun or the moon and the stars and be reminded that as distant as they are, their creator is not. He is with you. Well, the word of God continues by telling us that not only is God good, but that his goodness, his loving kindness is consistent. And this brings us to our second perfection of God to remember, to resist temptation. Remember God's steadfast goodness. The second part of verse 17 says, with God there is no variation or shifting shadow. We know that even the stars in the sky have a shelf life. They vary and shift in their position, in their brightness, and will eventually die, but not God. Not only will he never die, but he will never change. And with that lack of change comes the fact that he will never cease giving good things. He will never cease giving perfect gifts. It's not like a a relative. Maybe you have one of these. Maybe you've heard of it in the movies. Who is the one who all the kids are always excited about at Christmas time because he's the rich uncle that brings good gifts. But once in a while, he can't make it out for Christmas. No fancy gifts. Someday his money may run out. Someday he will die. Someday you as a child will grow up and simply no longer want his gifts. But not so with God. With him, James writes, there is no variation or shifting shadow. Variation speaks of something that alternates. In ancient Greek, this would, uh, a word was used to describe many things, such as the alternating teeth on a saw, stones in a building that were set in an alternating pattern, much like modern-day bricks, or stones uh, on, a, on a path that were in an alternating pattern. Generally speaking, variation spoke of some sort of regula- regularity or system that was now undergoing change. And in the context of the description of God above, this would refer to the movement of the celestial bodies. Even the sun, the moon, the planets, and the stars have variation. So not necessarily random or chaotic movement, but even continuous systematic variation, but variation nonetheless. He also says with God there is no shifting shadow. We understand uh, is, under, is due to the movement on our earth to the sun and the moon. Stand in one place long enough and you can literally see your shadow move on the ground. So much so that as we know, early timekeeping was achieved by looking at shadows on a sundial. And what James is saying here is simply that God does not change in his goodness nor in his gift giving. It is his nature to be good and unchanging in that goodness. Whereas even the daylight, even the sunshine is at the mercy of the ever-shifting planetary orbit. God is not. And it's not just what he desires that does not change. It is what he does. His giving will be eternally unchanged Even in its intensity and quality, he will always give good things. 
every perfect gift. Some of you may know that last Tuesday there was a total lunar eclipse. Not a normal lunar eclipse, a total lunar eclipse where the moon falls completely in the shadow of the earth. Whereas your typical lunar eclipse, which happens yearly, is just the shadow is partially covering it. That was last Tuesday. If you missed it, it won't happen again until March of 2025. Why? Because even this planet that we live on, these great sources of light are constantly moving. They're constantly shifting. Even the great celestial bodies in outer space such that I understand modern technology, but you've got to admit that even with modern technology, the fact that we can see the stars and the planets is amazing and testament to how large and how far that they are. Even those, even planets that certain people that are alive today are saying, my goal is that we will one day reside on that planet because it's big enough. And we can make it sustainable. It's not just talking about one person on a little ball, on a little sphere. He wants many people to live there. This is how grand they are, how powerful they are. And yet, they are subject to variation and shifting shadow. But not their creator. Not God. And when you truly understand whom and what God is, you get this. Shadows exist because of bodies outside of themselves. Right? There is something that creates that shadow, that casts that shadow. God is not created. He is not determined or affected by anything outside of himself. And in the same vein, nothing can block his light or interrupt his goodness. There is no shadow, whether physical or spiritual, that can place us outside of His radiance. You may feel like you are, but you never are. Again, we see the importance of understanding God's character as well as relying on that character as believers. This is so important because not only are the sun, moon, and stars always shifting, but so are we. Physically, yes, moving, growing. But more importantly, we are always shifting spiritually. We're always shifting emotionally, sometimes frighteningly so. Happy one day, angry the next. Sometimes happy about a particular thing and then angry the next day about that same particular thing. Anyone who has a cell phone understands this. And I say that not just for chuckles, but to show how trivial, how varying and shifting we are. To be thankful for modern technology and the next day ready to smash that phone because it takes three seconds instead of one to connect. Content one moment, discourage the next, sometimes literally within seconds. And in those moments, that's when temptation sets in. Which is why in those moments, we must look to God. When you look to other people, guess what? They're shifting and changing too. 
And in fact, if you're close enough, either physically or in terms of relation, your shifting emotions are going to induce their shifting emotions. Not your fault, their fault, as we see from James 1, but you see what I'm saying. We must look to God. We need to stop trying to change things that we can't change. Fix things that we can't fix. We need to turn to God. And you say, Roger, I get that. I get that. I do. But you say, I'm still upset. I'm still discouraged. I'm still tempted to sin. And understand that in the midst of discouragement, sin is not some of many of these blatant sins like I'm tempted to go flirt with someone who's not my spouse or go punch someone in the face. Temptation can just be discontent. Temptation can be having a judgmental attitude. Temptation can be accusing other people of other things. Those are sins that we often struggle with in the midst of discouragement. And you say, I understand God is not changing. I understand He created things good. I understand I have a relationship with Him. I understand Christ died for my sins. Pastor, why is that not enough for me? I don't know the answer for you. I can't answer that question for you. But I do know this. You need to search your own heart and the Scriptures and ask yourself, why is God not enough for you? And if the answer to that question is anything outside of your own lust and your own sin, the answer is wrong. God's not enough because I'm not married. Wrong answer. God's not enough because my husband. Wrong answer. God's not enough because my kids. If only my kids. Wrong answer. And this, my friends, is why you are chasing your tail. Because you're not looking in your own heart and dealing with your own sin and recognizing your own temptation and looking to God. I get it. It's hard. It's hard to say I'm sorry to other people. It's even harder to say I'm sorry, Lord. It's been me all along. Oof. That's tough. But as believers, we've all done that at some point, and man, that is refreshing, that is joyful, that is powerful, that is spiritually sanctifying. Don't forget how we started. Verse 14, last week. Do not be deceived in thinking that your temptation and sin comes from anywhere outside of yourself being carried away and enticed by your own lust. And all of this is possible for you as a believer. It is the way for us. James makes this clear in verse 18 where we find our final point. We're looking at three perfections of God to remember to resist temptation. We've seen God's sacrificial generosity. We've seen God's steadfast goodness. Finally, (laughs) 
Uh, and this is, this, is, this is everything, isn't it, for us on a practical level? Number three, God's saving grace. Verse 18. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. This is an intricate way of simply saying that we are saved. In the intricacy are some encouraging and fascinating details. Let me run through those really quickly. First, we see that God was fully in His own right and volition or choice in saving us. It was, as James says, in the exercise of His will. The emphasis here that James is making is that there was nothing outside of God that was compelling him to do what he did. He didn't have to do it. He wasn't forced to do it. He acted freely and without constraint in both the creation of the world as well as the creation, then saving of man. We can put it simply by saying God is sovereign. God exercises his choice his volition, through specific and purposeful action. He did that when he made the world. He did that when he sent his son. He did that when he killed his son. He did that when he saved you. And since that moment of salvation, this same free will has gifted you with innumerable blessings, many if not most of which you are not even consciously aware of. By the way, this also means that we did not influence him either. Salvation is by grace, it is not earned. Specifically though, what is it that James is saying God did freely and purposefully? In the verse he says, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is talking about regeneration, not creation. Brought us forth is referring to spiritual life and it is by God's word, the word of truth, that we are born again. This would refer to the entirety of God's word generally, but of course the gospel specifically. And James is saying that the word is the means or the instrument by which we are saved. At the end of the verse, James gives us a purpose clause as indicated by the so that in the NAS. He gives us the purpose in this context for why God saved us. The purpose is that we would be the first fruits among his creatures. We saw this concept of first fruits in regard to resurrection back in 1 Corinthians 15. Here it refers to the first fruits of a harvest of believers throughout time. First fruits were in the Old Testament the first and best of a farmer's crops that they were the Israelites were to offer to God. So it wasn't, oh, first paycheck, go send it on themselves. It was first paycheck, the first crop. They bring it to the temple to offer to God. And these were offered to God and were both an indicator and promise of what the rest of the harvest would look like. It was a promise on their part that we would bring more of our good fruits, our vegetables, even our animals. But in doing that and sacrificing their first, which was often the best, what they had been waiting all, all year for, they would sacrifice to the Lord. It was also promised for the Lord that they would have a strong harvest to come. At the time of James's writing, the early church period, the people that he is writing to, including James himself, were some of the first Christians ever. Not believers in a general sense. You understand the term Christian was in Christ. So there were only Christians since Christ died, raised again, and was ascended to heaven. And so he's saying those believers 
And so this part of the verse actually doesn't apply to us. He's saying us, speaking of Christians 2,000 years ago, he's saying we're the first of the harvest of Christ, a promise of more salvations to come. And you have to understand that what we see or our experience never proves Scripture. That's very important because sometimes pastors, including myself, will indicate, see, I know this is true and I've experienced this. I am never saying that it is true because of my experience. Because if my experience contradicts Scripture, I believe that my experience is misinterpreted or false. And I say that all to help you understand what I'm about to say, which is we know this was a promise and was true, and we can look back 2,000 years later and know that this was fulfilled because millions of people have become Christians since these first fruits. Why does James bring this up? Because the new birth through the word of God is the height of giving good gifts to man. If he sent his son to die for your sins, how can you ever doubt that he will give you anything less than good and perfect gifts from above? The reason James tells us these things and the reason I'm encouraging you to remember these three perfections of God is to help you in the midst of temptation. And as I said last week, the only reason we even care to resist temptation, the only reason we are concerned about temptation at all, is because of our desire to honor God. And since that is the case, it must be God whom we ultimately turn to, not merely as a reason to resist temptation, but as the source of strength to resist temptation. And so three perfections of God to remember to resist temptation. God's sacrificial generosity, God's steadfast goodness, and of course, God's saving grace. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are perfect, that you are perfectly good, and that goodness is not contained selfishly, but it comes forth in salvation and in giving us good things. Help us to not just rejoice because of these truths. Help us to resist because of these truths in the midst of temptation. Not blaming others, but at the same time not looking to others to help us resist. May we do so for your glory, Lord. Thank you that all of this is possible all of this is what you desire. And the challenge lies in us. And so all the more, may we resist, may we repent, may we look to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.